Thank you. I will remind you we are going through the life of Jesus chronologically. So in your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 12. The title of our message, anxiety, what did, what did I title it? Covetousness or anxiety? Beware of covetousness and anxiety. Beware of covetousness and anxiety. Nice. I just make these things up as I, I get them. Here we go. So we find ourselves once again in Luke chapter 12. Father, thank you for your word again, Lord. We just pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. And Lord, you care. You care about us. You care about our attitudes. You care about our dispositions, Lord. You care about the things that uh, consume us, that overwhelm us, Lord. You care that the enemy is subtle. And uh, Lord, you want to give us direction and insight into how we are to navigate through this world. Pilgrims passing through, Lord, treading lightly. And so, Father, I just pray that you would bless your word as it goes out. As we give it to you, we offer this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the life of Jesus chronologically, we find ourselves at the last few months of the life of Jesus. He... We saw the six-month point when he came into Jerusalem. He would be there, and it's almost like he's just reached a point where he's, he's done with the religious leaders. He is um, desiring to reveal himself to them, but they continue to get it wrong, and they don't want to be bothered with um, what Jesus has to offer. They're okay with their system, they're okay with their traditions, and nothing could be uh, further from the truth as far as them having it figured out. They don't. But the multitudes are coming to Jesus, and they continue to flock, and Jesus is desiring to minister to them. So those who want to be ministered to, Jesus will give them attention. For those who don't, Jesus would tell them, just last week we looked at it, that they have come to the point of no return. They have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit rejecting the fact that God had sent Jesus to this world and they are attributing what he's doing to Satan, to the devil. And so that's where we're at. I'm going to catch you guys up because we're going to be in the middle of chapter 12 and we're only going to cover a few verses today. So if you look back at chapter 11, Jesus um, shows them, he answers the question of, how we should pray, and he gives what we consider to be the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is really found in John chapter 12, but we call this the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And so he gives them that. And as he's just going on, just going through speaking to his disciples, he gets invited to the house of a Pharisee. And this Pharisee immediately lifts up the tradition above the reality and the truth. And he, he questions why Jesus doesn't ceremonially, ceremonially wash his hands. And Jesus just kind of nails him, and he calls him a hypocrite. And then Jesus gives us the recipe for hypocrisy. And the definition of this word hypocrite is a mask wearer, somebody who wears a mask, somebody who's a two-face. They want to, on the exterior, look a certain way, but inside nothing truly is going on. 
And so in the midst of that, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. And in the midst of that, there's a multitude, a crowd that is innumerable. In fact, they're so big, they're stepping on one another to hear and to get to Jesus. And we saw that in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all. And so, excuse me, last week we saw Jesus gives us the recipe for hypocrisy. He doesn't want us to be fake. He doesn't want us to be phony. He doesn't want us to be mask wearers, individuals who are pretending but not possessing. And so the recipe he gave us for hypocrisy was twofold. First, fear the Lord. Reverence God. Put him in his rightful place. Second, be careful with what's coming out of your mouth and continue to confess Jesus with your mouth. And it's not confess Jesus one time in life. It's continually throughout your life be confessing Jesus with your life. The Bible would declare that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what we're confessing or what's coming out of our mouth is truly what we believe. Our heart is the throne of, of, of our life. It's, it's the seat of our emotions. It's, it's the things that we, we uh, feel intently about. And so if out of the abundance of the heart, the, my mouth is speaking, if Jesus is, is in my heart, then I should be speaking things that Jesus would be speaking, right? So that would be the recipe for um, hypocrisy, fearing God, reverencing him, and confessing with our mouths. And then he gives this parable in verse 13. We looked at it last week. He says, then one from the crowd, oh, no, 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 before that, verse 8, on confession, he says, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And that's a lifestyle, a lifestyle of confessing God with our life. It's not, and this is um, a problem that I see within the church. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I remember back this one day I prayed a prayer or I came forward or I did this thing. And based on that, we're going to say, okay, then you're a Christian, right? But what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to constantly, continually be confessing me before men. And if you constantly, continually deny me before men, then I'm going to deny you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you constantly, continually confess me before men, then I'll confess you before my Father. And that's exactly what he says right there. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And so again, he's letting these religious leaders, even though he's talking to his disciples, he's letting these religious leaders know you're on the verge of committing the one single unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was, was different as Jesus walked the earth, but we can still today commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so what they were doing was they were attributing to Jesus the power of Satan or the works that Jesus was doing. They were saying, Jesus, you're doing these, these miracles 
by the power of the demons, Beelzebub. And Jesus is saying, wow, you're, you're, you're getting close to committing the unpardonable sin. Um, how do we today commit the single sin that will keep us out of heaven? By rejecting Jesus Christ over our lifetime. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to the cross. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to show us our need for a Savior. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. John the Baptist would see him walking on the horizon and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if over our lifetime we resist the power of the Holy Spirit trying to convict us and show us the reality of our need for God, if we do that over our lifetime, then we've committed the single sin that will keep us out of heaven. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. And so now, on the heels of that, and I find this almost hilarious or at least comical, Jesus is talking spiritual. Jesus is talking things of eternity. And then we see this individual, almost like Jesus takes a breath, and this individual throws his question out to Jesus. And let's pick it up. This is where we left off last week, verse 13. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Again, I find it funny because Jesus is talking things spiritual and this individual is concerned about things temporal. Jesus is trying to get the people to look to things eternal and this individual is fixated on things temporal. And so it is with us, is it not? We tend to be concerned about the things that are material and the things that are temporal as opposed to things eternal and spiritual. Notice Jesus' response, verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So covetousness or coveting, it would be the 10th commandment In the list of ten, Moses would come down from the mountain with two tablets. On the first tablet, he would have the first four commandments, the relationship that we are to have with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, Have no other gods before me. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. On the second tablet, he would have the six that would deal with our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. Don't steal, don't lie, don't uh, commit adultery. And then the last one is um, do not covet, thou shalt not covet. And let me go over there and read that one to you because it's more than just a, a desire. This is Exodus chapter 20. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is to desire. And so we know that we can have good desires and we can have bad desires. What makes the sin of covetousness a sin is it's desire to desire something that God doesn't want for you. 
It's outside of God's will. So in coveting, it's wanting more of what you already have enough of. And that's what coveting is. It's desiring something that is outside of what God has for us. And it's not just material things. And we can covet all kinds of things. We can have a desire for all kinds of things that are outside of God's will. And so this individual comes to Jesus, and again, it's almost like when Jesus took a breath, this guy comes and he asks this question, Jesus, help me with my brother, share the inheritance. They had a cool little way of doing this back in the days. What they would do is, the older brother was responsible for taking that which was inherited to the family, and he was responsible to divide it. And then the youngest brother was able to choose first which portion he wanted. So the oldest brother had to make sure that he divided it equally because he knew that the youngest brother was going to come and take first dibs, had first dibs at at picking. But apparently this brother is telling Jesus something not fair is going on. And Jesus just lets them know that there's this, this bad thing about a focus on material things. In studying this, I came across this story and our fixation on things earthly, on things material. It was 1916, and Haiti Green was dead. Haiti's life is a sad demonstration of what it is like to be among the living dead. When Haiti, or Hattie, died... Her estate was valued at over $100 million. Now, in today's economy, $100 million in 1916 is equivalent to $1 billion today. And so this lady dies and she leaves $100 million in 1916. Yet Haiti lived in poverty. She ate cold oatmeal because it cost money to heat it. When her son's leg became infected... Hattie wouldn't get it treated until she could find a free clinic that wouldn't charge her. By then, her son's leg had to be amputated. Hattie died arguing over the value of drinking skim milk. She had money to meet her every need, but she chose to live as if it didn't exist. There's another story that I read about this lady. The way her son got his leg infected, she would buy a five cents paper, and she would send him out After she would read, because she made her money in stocks, she would read the stock page, fold the paper up nice and neatly, give it back to him and send him out in New York uh, where it was snowing, cold, to resell the paper and get her five cents back. And so on one of these occasions, he ended up getting sick and somehow his leg got infected and her trying to find this free clinic, waiting for the free clinic to be able to meet her son's needs, his leg ended up getting infection to the point where it had to be amputated. And, and our attitude towards money and how we, we look at money um, can really throw us for the loop. Jesus is telling this individual, as he is talking about things eternal, be careful of your fixation on that which is material and temporal. And be careful with coveting, with desiring things that you already have enough of. And it's very difficult in our culture because we have so much we don't even recognize it. 
we have above and beyond what we need and we tend to be in prayer for our greed as opposed to our needs because there is so much that we have. Jesus goes on to give this parable. He says in verse 16, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain man, a rich man, yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so Jesus gives this little parable of an individual who is just so consumed with self. If you go back and read those verses again, you will see the word me, I, and mine just repeated throughout the little parable. And so this individual is consumed with self as opposed to being rich towards God. And he's looking at his needs and what he's doing. And Jesus is letting him know your fixation on the material and the temporal is caused you to live like a fool because your soul is required of you tonight. You're going to die. And so these building bigger barns and these storehouses that you've built for yourself, somebody else is going to get them. You're not even going to be able to enjoy them. And so in that, I just see this double message. Number one, enjoy life as it comes. There's nothing wrong with homes cars and being able to enjoy those things, the blessings that God is able to provide for us. But on the other hand, that's not what we're living for. That's not what's going to bring us what we think oftentimes it's going to bring us. And so many times we will focus and we will just have all of this energy moving in a temporal direction with no concern to eternal things with no understanding that God is more concerned with being, us being prepared for eternity than the temporal world. And so I think that's just really what Jesus is saying. If you read throughout the scriptures, if you read just, just throughout what God is saying to us, life has been given us, to us as, as a blessing. And material things can be a blessing. And so again, there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with saving up for a a vacation, for something that you want to purchase. There's there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. It's when our possessions begin to possess us as opposed to we possessing our possessions. And what is it all about? Are we just amassing these kingdoms on earth? so that uh, moth and rust can destroy. And we'll soon learn that we've invested in the wrong place. And, And in this whole thing, what Jesus is saying is, have your mind on things eternal. Send treasure ahead. How do you do that? By giving it away, by looking at the needs of others. And so enjoy that which God has given you for sure. But at the very same time, think in terms of eternity. Very closely related to coveting and desiring, Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, then he said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, of the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fill, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so closely related or linked to being covetousness, Jesus just tells us, be careful with worrying. Be careful that you don't worry. Let me give you the definition as found uh, for, for worry. Worry is thoughts, images, and emotions of a negative nature which mental attempts are made to avoid anticipated potential threats. Again, worry is thoughts, images, and emotions of negative nature which mental attempts are made to avoid anticipated potential threats. So, I find it interesting. It's this gigantic cycle as I watch it. Worry. It's this combination of my thoughts, my mind, and my emotions. And I'm, I'm concerned, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I'm consumed with these thoughts, and emotions, and they, and they just play into one another. And so those thoughts and my emotional makeup, I begin to get anxious, overwhelmed, consumed by, and that's what worry is, right? It's just this weight on our shoulders that we carry. We, we, we put this backpack with rocks on, and we just carry it proudly. Well, I'm just concerned. I'm just... I mean, somebody has to be concerned or worried or anxious about these things because why? Is God concerned? In, in this section, he's saying that he cares about a sparrow that falls. How much more is he going to care about us and the needs that we have and the, the things that concern us or worry us, the things that make us anxious? God gives us the very recipe for anxiety, we choose for whatever reason not to take it. As a man thinks, so he is. If you look at coveting, it deals with the inside. Every other commandment of the ten deals with actions, our acts. Don't do this, do this. But it's coveting that deals with the heart. 
and the desires that dwell within us. And then he goes on and he talks about this worrying and he's saying, I don't want you to worry. Nobody has died of overwork, but many have died of overstress, of being consumed with their thoughts and their emotions that get um, just ahead of them. And just this combination, again, just that feeds off of one another. The, the book of Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Guard your heart. But what we do is, instead, we let God handle salvation. Lord, you've got salvation, and it's a category of my life. You've got heaven and eternity, and so I'm going to give you that part of my life. Lord, you've got salvation, because you died on the cross, you were perfect, I give that to you. And then for whatever reason, we just say, I'm going to handle the other aspects of my life. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to overwhelm myself and be consumed with all of these thoughts that are going to jive with my emotions and click and sometimes conflict, but they're going to feed one another, and I'm going to be overwhelmed with life and the issues of life. And God is saying, guard your heart. Guard your heart, because out of it flow the issues of life. The recipe for worry, the recipe for being anxious and overwhelmed, the very recipe for my thoughts and my emotions, God gives to me in his word. He, he gives it to me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be consumed. I don't have to let my emotions get the best of me. In Philippians chapter 3, oh, I'm sorry, it's chapter 4. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. That's a command. Don't be anxious. Stop worrying. Well, I can't stop worrying. Somebody has to worry. I mean, I'm the one that gets paid to worry, so, Right? Reminds me of the story. There was this guy who was overly, just overly consumed with worrying. And he worried about everything. He never had rest. He never slept because as he would sleep, he would just think about all of this stuff. Who's going to handle this? Who's going to take care of that? I'm the one that has to just be consumed with all of these things. And so his friends knew it well. And so he comes to his friends one day and they see him and he's like, wow, you're kind of calm today. What's... <laughs> It's not like you. Usually you're freaking out. You're frettered about something. What's going on? He goes, well, I don't worry anymore. He's like, you don't worry anymore? What'd you do? He says, I put an ad out in the paper. Um, I want to hire somebody who will worry for me 12 hours a day, and I will pay you $1 million a month if you would worry for me. And the guys look at him, and they're like, wow, $1 million a month. I mean, we know you had money, but $1 million a month, that seems like quite a bit. You can't even afford to pay that. What are you going to do when it comes time to pay this guy a million dollars a month? He goes, I don't know. That's for him to worry about. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to worry about that anymore. So we are commanded here in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. But notice, he goes on to say, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts, God's my emotions covered, and your mind, God's my thoughts covered, through Christ Jesus. Wow, what's that? 
God is saying that if I would stop worrying, if I would just give that to him, so an issue comes up in my life where I could worry about it, God says, why don't you just give that to me and be thankful for it? What? Yeah. Be thankful for that which you normally worry about and just surrender that to me. And as we have this relationship and it's a back and forth and you're in communication with me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something that will blow you away, but I'm going to guard your hearts or your emotions and I'm going to guard your mind, the thoughts that come into your mind, and you're going to have perfect peace. That's supernatural peace. It's something that is beyond, but we don't want to do that. For whatever reason, we say, well, that doesn't work for me. I'm just, by nature, I'm naturally a warrior. Well, you may very well be by nature or naturally a warrior, but you take God at his word and you begin to recognize that this it's exactly what he's calling you to do. Interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it's the chapter on warfare, spiritual warfare that takes place. And in the midst of that, it says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Powerful, powerful. I had these twins in my class when I taught. And one of them was just easy peasy, easy going. And another one was a worry ward. She worried about everything. It was almost obsessive compulsive disorder to the extent that she worried and I remember bringing them into class and the one sister that's easy peasy was concerned about her, her sister that was just overwhelmed with all of these thoughts. And as she, they, they sat in my classroom and I just shared with them, I shared this scripture with her. Um, she said it wouldn't work for her. A year later, she was uh, placed into an institution because it was just overwhelming for her. And so... We disobey the very word of God to our detriment. We obey it and we find that in obedience, God will give us the power to do what he's calling us to do. There's a scripture that I want to read to you in 1 Peter. And it's a section of scriptures, but there's one scripture that just stands out as it relates to this topic. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. And the scripture is casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. But I want you to see the context of what Jesus or what Peter is talking about. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 5. The Bible says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, 
and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so in the midst of that warfare, in the midst of that cares, in the midst of that pride and humbling yourself, is that scripture, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And it's interesting that word cast is kind of like rolling a rock up a hill. And what happens when you roll a rock up a hill? It's going to come back. And he's saying, be in a habit of, because you ever notice you, you give God your problems and then they come back to you and then you're worried about them again. And then you go, oh, Lord, I want to give this to you. And then they come back to you and then you're worrying about it. And like, what am I doing? I thought I gave it to him. Well, that's this word here. Casting your care upon him for he cares for you. And what you'll see is it's a, a dialogue. It's a relationship. And as you have those things that are overwhelming you and you're just communing with the Lord and you're saying, Lord, here's a concern that I have. Here's a genuine need that I have, Lord. And I want to give it to you. And then it'll come back. It'll roll back. And then you say, well, Lord, here it is again. But I'm a little better because I went a little further. And I remember that one thing you told me, Lord, and I did it. But the concern is here again. And Lord, I just want to give it back to you again. And what do you have taking place is just this neat opportunity to dialogue with the Lord in a relationship with the Lord. I was talking to um, a guy yesterday who found out that I was a pastor and had something that he wanted to share with me. And he said, if I can give him five minutes to listen to what he had to say. So I said, yeah. You know, he wanted counsel, direction. And then what he went on to do was explain this horrible mess that his life was in. And what he wanted God to do with this horrible mess that his life was in was to bless his mess. That's what he wanted, essentially. How do I get God to bless my mess? He didn't say that, but that's exactly what he wanted. And I said, God's not intent on blessing our messes. God's not down with blessing our messes. God calls us to obedience. And you can continue to try to fix your messes, but God will put you in a fix to fix you. And if you fix the fix that God puts you in, then God will give you another fix to put you back in the fix to fix you in the first thing that he wanted to fix you with. And that's a cycle that you can live your whole life. But God is intent on growing you up. And God is not a passive, permissive parent. Because we see that in our community very well right now. We see Spoiled, rotten brats running all over, getting everything they want, learning no lessons, having no depth of character. God, our Heavenly Father, doesn't raise His children quite like that. And so God is intent on giving you the lessons you need when you need them, and until you get it, God will wait you out. It would take 38 years for the nation of Israel to learn a simple lesson. And the lesson is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
I allowed you to walk through the wilderness so that you would be humbled and so that you would see that I am God is what he tells basically, essentially, the nation of Israel. And God is intent on giving you that lesson. Now, God isn't just happy to have us stop there. God wants to take us just to the heights. God wants to bless us just above and beyond what we can imagine. But until you get the lesson that God has for you, you'll wander. You'll wonder, why does it look like those Christians are just soaring and experiencing these great things? And man, I just, I just seem stuck. I just seem in a place where it's just, ah, no growth, not moving further with the things of God. Ask God, Lord, what is it that you're trying to teach me? Because I want to get it. I want to learn this lesson. And I want to move forward. And I want to just, I want to soar. I want to go to the heights. That's how much God loves us. He will not spoil us. And yet we're spoiled, are we not? Just with so much goodness that God has given us. But in the sense of a spoiled, rotten brat, God's not down. And so as I'm talking to this guy, I I let him know. I said, it sounds like you're asking God or you're asking me to tell you how is God going to bless my mess? And eventually, essentially, what I told him was, I should have told him more, but what I told him was, you need to start at step one. And for you, step one is simple. You need to find a Bible-believing church where you can sit under the word and God will give you light for the very next step. And that's what God is intent in doing in all of our lives. It's no different for you than it is for me than it is for anyone in here. God has called you and me simultaneously to walk by faith and not by sight. And God has promised to take care of your needs. God has promised to have you. But if you are intent on your agenda and your goals and your things, then God will say, okay, go ahead and go for those things. They're not going to bring you what you thought they were. They're not going to give you what you think they are. But if you just let me guide you, just simply trust me with your life. You trust me with salvation. Why not give me your life? I can do a way better job with it than you can. And so just surrender that to me. And that's the hard thing, is it not? All right, Lord, you have salvation, but I got the rest. God says, no, 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 no. Give it all to me. Surrender it all to me. And if you do that, just like I took care of salvation, I'll take care of your path and I'll put you on paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. Amen? Easier said than done, huh? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for just your word. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that, Lord, just the contrast. We see, Lord, that when you speak to your disciples, Lord, there's just this genuine concern and love and just this patience that you have with them, Lord. And you have the very same thing for us, Lord. We bump our heads oftentimes, uh, just in this world and and trying to figure it out and thinking that we have it all under control. But the reality is, Lord, we need to surrender. We need to allow you, Lord, just uh, that preeminent place in our hearts. And Lord, it's for our own good. And so, Lord, you're not mad at us. You're mad about us. You're, You're in love with us. I pray, Father, that we would recognize that, that we would understand that, and that we would surrender these things to you, allowing you, Lord, just your rightful place. 
So, Lord, we just thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.